Amen. So my dad's dad, my papa, uh, loved the Lord. He, he was a, a true servant. You really did see in his everyday life just a desire to, to serve others. He, he was also a jokester. He also enjoyed making people laugh and, and laughing himself. And I heard a story once about him. have no clue whether or not it's true, but I, I remember hearing this story numerous times that one day he decided he wanted to uh, he wanted to get some trees for the front of their house to provide to provide some shade. And so he went and he bought some little five-gallon trees, as you do, and had them planted in his front yard. And he looked out there and, and realized this is going to take a while. These, these trees aren't going to grow fast enough to really provide any kind of any kind of shade for us. And so he called a man up and he told him, "Hey, first thing tomorrow morning, I want you to come and dig up these baby trees, plant something a little more mature, a little more a little more substantial." And he didn't didn't include my grandmother in that plan didn't tell her anything about it so the next morning she wakes up and here are these trees much bigger and she's blown away these are the most amazing trees I've ever seen they tripled in size overnight well Papa thought that was pretty funny so he calls the man back he says do it again so the next day the guy comes and he digs those up and he puts in some even bigger plants at this point my grandmother looks out and she figures out what's happening she's the butt of her husband's the butt of her husband's joke, and who knows how much money he spent to pull that off or how many times he would have done it if he hadn't been caught. But I suppose the reason I, I thought about that story this week is because in the kingdom of God, it can feel like the opposite is happening. You know, we, we wake up each and every day, and we do our best to sow seeds. We do our best to take the word of God and to just to scatter it. To scatter it into our own lives, to study the word, to memorize the word, to live by the word, to apply the word, to love the word. We do our best to call other people to believe in the word, to trust in Jesus Christ as revealed in this word. And we're not, we're not who we want to be. We're not who we will be, but we're not who we once were either. It feels at times two steps forward, one step back. We're continually returning to that very same vomit that God has called us from. But, but we do see fruit. We do see evidence that God is doing a work, that the Word is doing the work that God has promised it would, and that we're being sanctified and transformed and, and really molded into His image. And then as long as, we, as long as we surround ourselves with other believers, we surround ourselves with other people that are equally equally committed to striving and to struggling to follow after this follow after this word to see this kingdom come we can look around us at times and we can see glimpses evidence that in fact the kingdom of heaven has broken through here on earth but then once we venture out from those safe places once we leave the walls of this church the confines of our home or the the safety of our small groups the picture gets a whole lot more bleak we don't see a people that love the Word of God. We see people that blaspheme and mock. We don't see a people that trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We see people that call us as bigots and close-minded fools for, for following after this Jesus that we've never seen face-to-face. -face. See, as we look around us, it, it seems as though whatever progress this kingdom of God may have made, that somebody's come back in the night and just snatched it away like a prankster. Whatever growth we thought we saw in our own life, whatever growth we, saw, we thought we saw here on earth, it feels as though it's just being, it's just being snatched away, that there's, there's nothing really happening here, that perhaps we're delusional. 
we've got to wonder at times, are, are we the crazy ones here? Believing that this invisible God that we've never seen, that we're supposed to honor and obey him, we're supposed to trust him, that in the end he's going to return and he's going to make all things right. That maybe we're the fools as we go out in this world and we call out to people. You can't save yourself. You're not meant to save yourself. Just turn and trust in this Jesus Christ. I know that the world is painting a picture that makes it look like this is a foolish thing to do. That I know that there's no evidence as you look around you that, that you see no evidence that the kingdom of God is here. But I'm telling you that it is. And that when the king comes back, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. So do it now while there's still time. But are we crazy? Are we the loony ones? I don't, I don't blame the world at times for the way that they mock us. Because they are blinded to any evidence of the kingdom. They don't see any of this. And so this was... This is in part why Jesus gave the parables. We spent these last four Sundays studying these seemingly ordinary tales that Jesus told, these stories, these common, everyday stories that Jesus was telling. He was presenting them to his people to, to, to bring a, a sharper focus to the kingdom of God because it wasn't going to look the way that they expected. There were going to be times when they thought maybe they were the crazy ones. Now to the outsiders, these stories were going to do them no good at all. For those that either outright rejected Jesus or, and opposed him, or to those that just came for him looking for a handout, looking for a, a morsel of bread or maybe some temporary healing, for those folks, yeah, these stories were going to do them absolutely no good. In fact, even that that they thought they understood about the kingdom of God was going to be taken away. But for the insiders, those that sat at the feet of Jesus and did the things that he told them to do for them, it was going to illuminate. It was going to open their eyes. It was going to give them assurance that this kingdom had come. As he took these common everyday stories and he laid them beside deeper spiritual truths, he was showing them a picture of what was going to come. Dear friends, I pray that you recognize that he wasn't just speaking to them. These aren't just quaint stories from a time long past. He was speaking to us, speaking to you and to me, disciples of Jesus Christ, just the same as those first disciples that sat at his feet physically in that day. He was speaking to us because we need the clarity just like they do. Because as much as the world may have seemed to have changed around us, the political powers have changed. Technology has changed. Ultimately, spiritually, we're in the exact same place as they were. Because you see, with the advent, with, with the birth of Jesus Christ to this virgin woman, with his death, with his resurrection, with his ascension, with the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower the saints, with this building of this new people called the church, Jesus was ushering in what's called the last days or the last hour. We read the Apostle John talk about that. John, writing to the first century church, he says, Dear children, it is the last hour. It was the last hour then. It continues to be the last hour today. Because every single thing that needed to be done to guarantee the destruction, the obliteration, the wiping away of all of our enemies, it had been done. He had accomplished it all. Death, hell, Satan, sin, the grave, all of it. King Jesus had come, and he had defeated our very last foe. This is the last days. This is the last hour, then and today. So very accurate to say that we continue to live in the very same place that James and John, Peter, and Paul did. But the problem is we won't enjoy the full spoils of that victory until he returns. Jesus knew how difficult that was going to be. 
Well, we know that the kingdom of God is broken through in the person and the purpose, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. While we know that King Jesus, our champion, has come and he has won the victory, he still allows those enemies to roam. He still allows the God of this age to tempt us, to attack us, to come against us in too many ways to count. Jesus, knowing that he was leaving, here, leaving us here in a place where the kingdom of God has been inaugurated but not yet consummated, he knew how difficult that would be. As we look forward to his promised return, as we look forward to enjoying the full spoils of what it is that he has won for us, as we're joined with him and knowing that that victory is now ours, that as we look around us, and at times it was going to be difficult to see the evidence of that, as the world would mock us, your Jesus is one? He knew how difficult that was going to be. And so he spoke to them in this way because he knows that we can't live as kingdom citizens while thinking and fighting and acting the way the rest of the world does. It can't be done. So as we live this life as kingdom citizens here on earth, he had to call us to a new perspective. He had to call us to see things and understand things and think thoughts that are his. And he knew that our senses were going to lie to us. The things that we saw, the thoughts that we had, the emotions that rose up within us, they were going to lie to us. They were going to stretch us. They were going to try to pull us away from this hope, from this promise that's found in him. And so he speaks. By giving us these pictures, he speaks to us to assure us, I haven't lost. You're not crazy. Things are happening exactly as I told you they would happen. And so we've seen these over the last four weeks. We've seen these pictures. In the parable of the sower, he says, you're going to take this word, this powerful word, this word of my kingdom, and you're going to scatter it. You're going to sow it. And what you're going to find is more often than not, it's rejected. It's going to produce nothing at all. You see, with the kingdoms of the world, the people that reject that king, what happens? They're wiped out. They're destroyed. But I'm not going to destroy them. You need to expect and you need to understand that more people than not, they're going to reject my word. And then with the parable of the lamp, what he says is, as you go out into this world with a light, the light that is my word, the revelation of who I am, the revelation of my kingdom, you need to understand that as you go out into this world, it's going to be veiled from most. Not only are they going to reject it, they're not even going to see it. They're going to have no hope of understanding it or hearing it. So as you go out with this light, you yourselves, you need to be careful how you hear. Because the hearing, the receiving of this word, is going to be everything. Understanding my word, walking in obedience to my word, that's going to be what defines the insiders and the outsiders. Then with a the parable of the seed growing, he speaks to them and he says, listen, you need to understand that the work, the way that this thing is going to be carried out, is not going to be carried out in accordance with human effort. It's not going to be carried out in accordance with human will. You're going to have to sit back and rely fully and completely, rely on work that's done in ways that you can't understand. In this lifetime, you can't fully understand the way that my word is going to do its work, but you've got to trust as a matter of fact, the more you try to work in your own powers, in your own efforts, in your own intelligence, the less is going to happen. You're going to be a hindrance. You're going to be a stumbling block to the work that I'm doing here. This is the picture. Take my word and go and distribute it, sow it, share it, die to get it in the hands of people that are probably going to reject it, people that are completely blinded to it, people that don't understand or love or believe the words that are within it. And don't then call your troops together. You don't call the army together. 
You don't work any stronger in your own powers, in your own intellect, in your own abilities. You don't work the way that you think this thing is supposed to be carried out and then think that something's going to happen. You take this word that's going to be rejected. You take this word that the world is blinded to. You go out and you sow it and you let my word do the work by the power of my Holy Spirit. Look around you, church. Hasn't this played out exactly the way that God said it would? Exactly the picture that Jesus has painted for these people. That's it. So we come this morning to the parable of the mustard seed as Jesus shifts his focus from the process of the growth to the end result of the growth. Let's see if he can't round out this picture for us. So go ahead there in your home. Stand to your feet. As we return to Mark's gospel, we're still in the fourth chapter. And we're reading here the parable of the mustard seed, beginning in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Father God, would you open our eyes today? There are so many of us that we believe we have 20-20 vision, and yet we're wandering around like blind men. So many of us that think we have just incredible hearing, we are completely deaf. So, Father, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts and our minds, and allow us to rightly hear. All right, guys, and we are back. So very sorry about that. We were going to shift as we lost power. We lost power in... With that power, obviously, we lost our, our Wi-Fi signal. And so the plan was to go to my office. Not, not Haley and I both. That would be creepy. <laughs> Josh and Haley sitting behind Josh's desk. Super creepy. Um, but, but the plan was I was going to and, go and teach from there. But I couldn't get a good enough signal back there. And then by the grace of God, power and Internet has been restored, and so I'm, I'm delaying for a minute to allow people to log, log back in as they want. But I, I appreciate your patience, and I just every time something like this happens, I'm so reminded of how very spoiled we are, how uh, we're just accustomed to power and air conditioner and Internet, and we assume that those are, those are rights entitled to us by God, that we, we, should, we should expect them at all times. And um, that, that ain't the case. That ain't the case for most of the known world. That ain't the case for most of the history of the church. That um, <laughs> I was thinking it was interesting because we, we've got one security guy here. And then we've got, got Kyle that's running the sound and, and, the, and or the, the video. And then we've got Tanner running the sound and then Haley and, and I. And so as this thing went down... We all kind of went running different directions to try to figure out what to do next. And I was standing here thinking, I, I can, we're running chasing down an internet feed. We're not running for our lives. Our security guy didn't come in here and tell us, 
the bad guys are coming. We, we need to figure out what to do now. We were running to chase down which one of our $1,000 cameras we were going to look at, which one of our comfortable office spaces we were going to sit in. Guys, I'm telling you, the way that we enjoy church, even right now in this moment, it's not the way it's always been. And it's not the way it's guaranteed to be. And I'm not, I'm not griping about any of the good gifts that God has given us. He's given us many, and we're to take full advantage of those, and we're to praise him for them and, and use them to his glory. But we also need to recognize that there's no guarantees that this is, that this is the picture. So by now I pray that those of you that want to join us have, have rejoined us. And so I was in the middle of closing my prayer. We had, we had read there the parable of the mustard seed, one with which many of us are, are, are familiar. We, we understand that. And we recognize that as opposed to the other parables, the parable of the mustard seed is more of an observation than a story. We don't hear about a man scattering the seeds. We don't, we don't, we don't hear some of the other characters that you hear in other parables. It's, it's an observation. And he says, verse 30, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. It's a mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? When, when, we, were in, when we were in Israel, we, uh, we got to go to a place called Megiddo, um, the Valley of Megiddo. And, and if you read in your Bible, depending on how you understand the end times, it's where the, where the, uh, the battle of Armageddon is likely to happen, as all the armies of the world gather together to, to try and battle God. Spoiler alert, it does not, does not go well, but we had gone through a cave there in Megiddo, and as we came up, there were these mustard plants there on the side of the road. I got a picture for you of, I wish I'd taken a picture of the plant, but I do have a picture for you of, of a mustard pod, a mustard seed pod, and if you bring that up, there you go, that's my hand. My fingernails are a little dirty there, but that's my hand, and that's, that's what a mustard seed pod looks like, and what you do is, as you break that open, you see those little black dots in the next picture, those are, those are mustard seeds. And you could take just a handful of those mustard seeds and you could pop them in your mouth. And as you bit down on them, just the flavor, it, it not only filled your mouth, but your nostrils as well. It was a, it was a strong, strong flavor. And these are, these are black mustard seeds. And you would have used these to make various kinds of oil. But you also would have taken it and you would have ground or crushed up the seed. And then you would have mis mixed it with water or vinegar or whatever, whatever flavoring you wanted to add in order to make the yellow stuff that you squirt on your hot dog. And so that's, that's the mustard seed. That's the seed that Jesus is talking about here. What he says is, it's like the grain of a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like the a grain of a mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, people that deny the perfection of God's word, people that deny the infallibility and inerrancy of God's word, they love to camp out on this verse. And they go, see, see, mustard seed isn't the smallest seed in all the earth. It's, it's a wild orchard seed. Uh, it's, it's an orchid seed. That's, that's, the, that's the smallest of all seeds on the earth. And See, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. This isn't just the word of God. This is the one that claims to be the son of God, and he doesn't even know what the smallest seed is in all the earth. See, I told you. I told you you couldn't trust this thing. Throw it out. And then we watch us preachers. They, they backpedal and they scramble and they jump over themselves. They say, well, 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 no, see, what happened is the Bible is inerrant about matters of, of, of faith, about matters of eternity. But when it comes to issues of science or, or when it comes to issues of, of, of geography or biology or those things, well, th then it doesn't have to be right. Come on. 
to the God of heavens and earth, the one who breathes the stars, the one who created everything that is and sustains everything that is. He looks and he says, okay, I'm going to teach you perfectly about matters of spirit, matters of, matters of eternity, matters of heaven. Eh, but when it comes to biology, eh, just take your best shot. Whereas if Jesus Christ, the one who knows the hearts of men, can't put things in size order like a kindergartner. Come on. It's not what's happening here. So here's the deal. There is a seed, the smallest seed that we know of, is Eretis odorata. It's a wild orchid, orchid seed. It's, 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 like, it's, like the, it's like dust. You almost can't see it. What they tell us is, is that it takes three million of these seeds to make up one gram. As a comparison, the mustard seed, like the one you saw in my hand, it takes like 700 of those to make up one, one, one gram. That's a pretty big difference, right? So what gives? Why would Jesus use this? Why would he speak in this? I believe... That the reason that he would speak of the mustard seed, it, it has to do with his audience and his purpose in this parable. As for the audience, we need to remember that these were a people that were an agricultural people. They were used to handling and sowing and caring for and growing for seeds. They spent much time with seeds in their hand. And of those that they regularly dealt with, of those that they planted, of those that they handled, of those that they hoped to produce anything, the mustard seed was it. It was the tiny one. So that it was common practice in that day to, when we referred to something that was tiny amongst those people, you referred to something like a mustard seed. We see this in Matthew 17, where he's telling his people, look, if you would just have just the most minute amount of faith, just the tiniest amount of faith in me, you could speak to a mountain and it would obey. And he compared that faith, the size of that faith, to what? A mustard seed. There's many times throughout Old, throughout with the Old Testament people, with the Jewish people, where they would speak in hyperbole like this, referring to the mustard seed as that tiniest of all things. And then as for the purpose, Jesus was painting a picture here. It was much more art than science. He was giving them a teaching, a lesson on theology, not botany. It wasn't saying, base your eternity on what is the smallest of seeds. He said, I'm painting a picture for you here, and I'm going to speak for you, to you in a way that you will understand. I will speak to you from your experience. I will speak to you in a way that when you hear this thing, you don't have to get too wrapped up in trying to see the picture, that your mind and your heart will immediately go there. You will see the picture, and then I will connect the dots for you. Scripture routinely does this. It speaks to us from man's perspective whenever God is painting a picture to show us something. And, and, and we do this in our own in our own conversations, you think about when we say something as quiet as a church mouse. You ever seen a church mouse? I've not. How quiet is it? I don't know. You talk about something being as soft as a baby's bottom. Is a baby's butt really the softest thing out there? Probably not. But we speak and people immediately know. You immediately understand the thing that they're painting a picture to. Whenever the Astros win the World Series, you go to downtown Houston and you say, all of Houston was there at the parade. Was all Houston there? Am I a liar in painting this picture for you? Certainly not. We see in the Old Testament God speaking in these terms. In Joshua 10, what we see is that the, that the people of God, they've come out and, they're, and they're, 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 they're going against these Amorite kings. And the battle is going to have to be halted because of darkness. The sun is going to eventually go down and they're going to have to stop the battle. And so what Scripture tells us is that on that day, God caused the sun to stop in the sky. We know the sun doesn't move through the sky. Well, I mean, technically it is moving through the universe, but it is us that is rotating around the sun. And he spoke to them from their perspective so that they could understand it. And we do the same today. 
We ask people, what time is sunset today? Was it 8.30? The sun's not setting. We're spinning. God allows us to speak and speaks to us at times from our perspective because he's not wrapped up in showing this, this perfect connection between this, the mustard seed, is the smallest of all. He's painting a picture for us of that which is small. So that's what he says here. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. It's tiny. You wouldn't notice a mustard seed if you're walking along the path. You wouldn't be excited if somebody gave you a mustard seed as a, as a gift. You wouldn't travel some long distance in order to see somebody's mustard seed collection. You wouldn't be scared if somebody told you, you better repent, you better, you better believe, you better get your heart right, you better prepare the path because the kingdom of God is here and you better watch out because it's like a mustard seed. Nobody takes notice of that. Nobody jumps and reacts and in response to that, verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large, large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. He's talking here. He's giving us another hint about why he would use the mustard seed as this balance, as, as this picture, because he's talking about of all the garden plants. Lacanon is the word here. It can be used for an, for an herb, for a garden plant, for a bush. Of all those that you plant in this way, the mustard seed is the one that grows the greatest, 10 to 15 feet. We can read in Jewish literature about people returning from battle on a horse, a rider on a horse, riding under the branches of a mustard, seed, of a mustard tree, mustard plant. In Matthew's gospel, in his parallel, he talks about it as becoming a tree. This isn't like a little bush where a plant, where, where the birds of the air would, would place their nest within it and the thing would fall over from the weight. This was more like a tree with large branches that the birds of the air can make nests in and enjoy its shade. From this tiny little thing to something great, to something grand, to something huge. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for these people. And now what about the birds? There's a number of theories about what these birds represent. And I would warn you, I would warn you to, to be reminded, number one, that this is a parable and not an allegory. Jesus' intention was not for us to dig into every last character and every last object and, and really camp out and build our theology on that. He was painting for us a picture, something that we would stand back at and observe and say, okay, now I see. Now I see a broader picture, a broader truth, one truth that you're painting for me about the kingdom of God. And yet there are people that, that camp out on this, and there's a, there's a number of theories about what this is. There are some people that say, you know what, the birds of the air, these represent Satan because as we look backwards to the parable of the sower, what we see there is that those that land, the seeds that land, the word that lands on the trampled path, that which is like concrete, that the birds of the air come and snatch it away. And then when Jesus is later giving an explanation to his disciples, he says that it is Satan who comes and snatches it away. So they say, well, surely that must be what these birds mean. Surely these birds are the evil one and those that follow after the evil one. Those that would seek to devour the word of God and yet cannot and are eventually consumed by it. There's other people that believe, well, not all of the birds are evil, and not everything represented here is that which would come against God's kingdom, that there's some birds that are evil and there's some birds that are not. And what this thing represents is the visible church. It's showing that there's going to be great growth within the visible church, perhaps too much growth, too large, so much so that there's people that are there that don't belong, those that are deceived, and that this is a picture of the, of the saints, of the truly redeemed, and then of the deceived, and how they all come together in one place that is the church. And while neither of those pictures are wrong, and, and certainly we do see that those things in the end will play out, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think he's painting just a much broader picture for us, showing us again from these, this tiny, imperceptible beginning that something great will grow. 
I think, I think we can learn more by looking back at the Old Testament. There's two pictures that are drawn there about large plants and birds. One of those is in Ezekiel 31. The other one is in Daniel 4. And so if you look back at Ezekiel, what you find is that God is, God is warning the people of Egypt through his prophet, through Ezekiel, and he's directing their eyes back to what happened with the great nation of Assyria. So this is, this is what he says. He's talking about Assyria. He says that it was a cedar of Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, and its top was among the clouds. He goes on to say that all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. This is a picture of just a mighty nation, an incredible kingdom, so much so that all the other nations of the earth came and enjoyed its shade, came and lived underneath its power. And then Daniel is... He's there with King Nebuchadnezzar, and God had routinely shown through Daniel that he was able to interpret the dreams of men, and the, the great king, he had had, a, he had had a troubling dream. And so he goes back a second time to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, would you help me, to, help me to understand this? And what Daniel reveals to him is that in this dream, God is painting for him a picture of what's going to happen to this king and to his kingdom. So he reveals that the king is represented as a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it the, there was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Again, a mighty nation, an incredible kingdom, so much so that all the rest of the earth, the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, the peoples of the earth, there was no end to the power that this kingdom had. So much so that everybody came and they rested underneath it. I believe that broader picture is what Jesus is painting for us here. That the summation of the parable of the mustard seed is this. It's going to start as something tiny, something minuscule, something that people would step over, something that you would pop hands full of in your mouth. It would look like nothing to most people, and it will not meet the expectations it will not come with flashes of lightning. It will not come laying low its enemies. It will be rejected. It will not be seen by most people, but it will sprout and it will grow. And in the end, it's going to flourish. That there's no portion of creation which will not be consumed by it in the end. To the very ends of the earth, there will be no nation, no king, no people, no anything. No portion of creation which will not be consumed by it. Even those that would seek to consume it. Even those that would oppose it. I think this is the picture of the kingdom of God, imperceptible in its foundation, and yet irresistible in its consummation. It's going to be stepped over by most of the world, but in the end there's going to be no one that doesn't fall under its influence, that doesn't bow the knee and confess with the tongue. This is what the disciples were pledging their life to. So am I saying then that the kingdom of God is no different than the kingdom of Assyria? Am I saying then that the kingdom of heaven is no different than the kingdom of Babylon? Certainly not. Because we continue to look at those pictures painted for us there in Ezekiel 31 and Daniel 4, we see the end of those kingdoms. That was the warning that God was giving to Egypt. He said, look back at Assyria. Look at how grand she was. Look at how mighty she appeared. Look at the scope of her power and her influence. And then he says, foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys its branches have fallen and its bows have been broken and all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and have left it. They should didn't last forever. It was chopped down and it was left. And then speaking to the 
king of Babylon, he talks about a holy one that comes from heaven, and he declares, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, lest let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Now he's speaking specifically to the humiliation that would come upon Nebuchadnezzar, that he would find himself out as a, as a beast in the field, eating grass and acting like an animal. But the nation itself, it would not last. We know that. That the kingdom of Assyria, as mighty as it looked, it would be defeated by the people of Babylon. The people of Babylon, they would give way to the Persians. The Persians, they would hand power over to the Greeks. The Greeks, they would be overtaken by the Romans. The Romans, they would lose their power as well. That as mighty as these kingdoms look, as vast as their kingdoms appeared, as powerful and as ready to stand forever as it would have looked from a human perspective, they will all be laid low. That in the end... When King Jesus returns, we don't know what the great world power is going to be in that day. We don't know who the big boy on the block is going to be in that day. But what we do know is that even that kingdom that is standing, when King Jesus returns, that nation will be no more. Then in the end, there will only be one kingdom that stands in all eternity, and that is the kingdom of heaven. And only those citizens that in this lifetime have received this word, have believed this truth, have confessed this king, that only they will reign, and all the rest We'll spend an eternity in Sheol, completely and totally and utterly separated. No, the kingdom of Syria, the kingdom of Babylon, they are not the patterns for the kingdom of heaven. They will all in the end perish. I want you to see the difference in the, in the picture there. As we look to, this, we look to this, these earthly kingdoms and we, we see the pomp and the circumstance and the might and the power. They appear to have all the benefits that one would need to truly make a run at this thing, to truly last forever, to truly build monuments which will never come down, to build a name for ourselves which will be remembered until the ends of the earth. And they all are destroyed in the end. They all succumb. They all fall. Then you look at this kingdom of heaven. Despite all the opposition in the world, they killed our king. The king from heaven that came to usher in this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, this kingdom that will last forever, they killed him. And as he builds his foundation upon the prophets and the apostles, this new people called the church, they were oppressed, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were killed. This tiny group of a few hundred, in the middle of all this persecution, flourished to a few thousand, flourished to a few million. And we look around us and we go, well, the kingdom doesn't look like it's flourishing. Look around. Look around in America. Do we have more people cherishing God's word than before? Doesn't feel like it. Do we have more people praising the name of Jesus Christ than before? Doesn't feel like it. Is the kingdom more evident in the United States of America than it was 200 years ago? It doesn't feel like it. But go to the places where the kingdom is most oppressed. Perhaps that's the problem. We've got it so easy here. And we don't face real persecution. So go to places like China or Iran Go to places where the kingdom is truly persecuted, where it really costs you something to follow after the king. And what you find there is a flourishing kingdom. You see evidence. Is it what it's going to be? Of course not. It will not be in this lifetime. That's the parable of the mustard seed. It will not be in this lifetime. Until King Jesus comes, it will not be what it once was. But don't get it twisted by looking around you and saying, well, it doesn't feel like America's following after the king. It doesn't feel like this country is representing the kingdom. Maybe not. But you must never get it twisted into thinking that somehow the kingdom has lost its power. If the king is not ushering this kingdom towards its appointed end. That's the parable. 
That which seems tiny and imperceptible, in the end it will be great, it will be grand, and there will be no ends to its influence, to its power, to its might. There will be no one that will escape its power. That's the parable of the mustard seed. As we look around and we see that Jesus has chosen to take this, this baby, look, look like an ordinary baby, born to ordinary parents, in a backwater town. He chose to usher in his kingdom in the person and the work of this. Not beautiful that anyone should look after him? Had no servants, had no power, had no money. Political power at least, had no money. Had no army. He would choose to hide his kingdom there. Why? Why would he do that? We understand that if there's anything God can't do, it's it's that he can't do anything which does not honor and glorify himself. He can't do anything which goes against his glory and his holiness and his perfection. Why then would he not usher in his kingdom with incredible ceremony? Why would he not usher in his kingdom in a way that nobody could deny it? Why would he not usher in his kingdom with, with, with great troops and with great power and with great military might? With all the riches this earth has to offer. Why would his son come wrapped in swaddling cloth, laid in a manger? Why would he not come riding in on the back of an elephant? Why would he do this? And we need to remind ourselves that he doesn't know us an answer. God owes us no answer for the reason he does things the way that he does them. And frankly, we need to remember that if he did things the way that we asked him to do them, it would be a wreck. And yet I do think he gives us glimpses of this in Scripture. And I think Paul speaks to that in part in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 28. He says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God, because God knows the hearts of men. And he knows that if he acts in the ways that we expect, and he acts in the ways that we define power and greatness, that it requires no faith. It requires nothing but the acts of the flesh to follow after this. And then in the end, we will not revel in God. We will not worship God. We will not honor God. We will worship ourselves. We will honor ourselves. It will become the Tower of Babel. Look at how great we are. Look at the great things we have done. It requires no faith to follow after people that look powerful in this lifetime. It requires no faith to sing praises to the people that are rich, that are famous, that are powerful in this lifetime. So God, knowing that about ourselves, he pushed us to a place where it was only by faith. It is only by humility. It is only by trust that you can look at this thing that started as a mustard seed and say, there is the kingdom. There is the treasure. There is the pearl. He presented himself in a way that it's only in dependence upon him that we could possibly see it and receive it and honor it and obey it and cherish it. But as the kingdom of God breaks through in ways that people couldn't possibly understand, and in spite of great persecution, in spite of us looking around at times and wondering, what happened to the growth we thought we saw yesterday, and now it's gone? So at the end of this thing, we can look backwards and go, that's only by God. Could have only been by God. John Calvin talks about it like this. The Lord opens his reign with a feeble and despicable commencement. For the express purpose that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. He did it in a way to illustrate, to magnify his greatness and his glory and his honor. 
Not according to human ways, not according to human wisdom, not according to human might. So as Jesus came, not grasping equality with God is a thing to be held on to, not being served but serving others, rejecting the people that would come and try to place him on a throne here, an earthly throne here, through military might, he pushes to a place where we look at him, we squint, and we go, I don't see anything. It's only when he opens our eyes, opens our ears, and softens our heart that we can see it as a thing to be treasured, that we can see any hope that's going to become something great. That's the question before us this morning. Are we going to walk by faith or are we going to walk by sight? Are we going to walk through this life? Are we going to speak or are we going to act or are we going to live in accordance with the things that we think we see? Are we going to allow our own expectations, our own experiences, our own emotions to drive us through this life? Or are we going to get so caught up in playing the same games and having the same fights as the rest of the world that we completely miss the kingdom of God? He says you will. He says if you continue to walk by your sight, your hearing, your expectations and your understandings, if you continue to take advice from the lost, the blind, the deaf that are out there, you're going to step right over it. You're going to miss it completely. You're going to go chasing after the same things that they go chasing after. And in the end, what you're going to find is that thing that you have stepped over, that thing that you have rejected, that thing that you have despised, it has encompassed the entire earth, the heavens and the earth, the ends of the earth. There is no escaping its power. And you will not enjoy its shade. You will not enjoy its fruit. Instead, you will be crushed as a result. But for those that will walk by faith, for those that will cry out, God, I believe, help my unbelief. There's even the tiniest amount of faith, faith that can only come from him, you will see, you will cherish, you will receive. You will give everything this life has to offer in, in exchange for more of that. Knowing that that thing that looks like nothing to our neighbors, the thing that they don't see at all, that it will become everything. It will become everything to you now. That you will begin to receive the blessings that this kingdom will bring in the end. You will receive, you'll begin to receive some of those blessings today. Blessings of joy, blessings of peace, blessings of assurance. Enjoying that eternal life even today. Even in the midst of losing your own life. Even in the midst of persecution. That even on those mornings when you wake up and you go outside and you look and you go, I sure thought that was bigger yesterday. To my eyes, it doesn't look like the kingdom is growing at all. It looks like it's shrinking. That you can trust by faith that God will bring it to its appointed purpose. I'm not going to walk according to what I see. I'm going to walk in faith each and every day, trusting in his promises. Trusting that he is able to do the thing that he's promised he's going to do. That's the question before us today. And I believe the warning that's before us today is that we need to take great care that we are not lying to ourselves, that we are charging after this kingdom of God while trying to hold on to these other things. These things that the world calls powerful and beautiful. These things that this world has tried to glom on to this kingdom of God. Is this kingdom enough? Is this your only king? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the promises of your word. Father, we thank you that... Um, Father, we thank you that we don't have to believe what we see. Father, you've not called us to a foolish faith. 
the evidence is all around us. And yet, Father, we know that our hearts and our minds are liars. That even that which you have revealed to us, Father, we can misinterpret, we can twist, we can change. We thank you that we don't have to walk in accordance with our own eyesight, trusting our own abilities. That we can trust in your promises. And that when your promises don't match up with our expectations, and when your promises don't match up with our fleshly desires, that, Father, we can trust you. Help us to do that. Help us to crucify our flesh and to place all our trust in you. Father, it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.